0: Not to say this about my students particularly, but just you know, when I kind of speak to um, blockchain or crypto, you know, people in, in that sort of age group, it turns out that uh, what a number of them uh, their their first exposure to to Bitcoin came about you know four or five years ago, and it was typically because they were using it to buy a fake ID. People kind of learned it for that, and then they saw the value of Bitcoin go way up, and they thought, oh wow, I wish I had kept the Bitcoin. <laughs> But, you know, that's, right. uh, again, not so much the uh, my students, but
1: others in that
0: age group. Right, right, right. Well, <laughs> no, yeah,
1: no, no comment on the fake ID purchasing uh, with, with cryptocurrencies. So anyway. Welcome to Episode 261 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy. And governments, um, and as you may have heard, uh, and as you may recognize from the voice, this is not Stuart Baker. Uh, this is Alan Cohn, and this is another episode of Blockchain Takes Over the Podcast. Uh, just as a note, uh, the views expressed here do not reflect uh, the opinions of Steptoe and Johnson or its clients. So today, uh, I am joined by special guest Jeff Bandman. He is the founder and principal of Bandman Advisors and co-founder of Global Digital Finance. Uh, he was also the architect and founding director of the Commodity Future Trading Commission's Lab CFTC initiative, which hopefully you can tell us a bit about in the context of uh, of other activities. I'm also joined by Gary Goldscholl, formerly the deputy director of the Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Trading and Markets, uh, and now a partner at Steptoe, uh, and Will Turner a partner in Steptoe's corporate practice group and our blockchain and cryptocurrency practice, uh, and also a board member of the Swiss American Business Council. And I'm Alan Cohn, uh, co-chair of the blockchain and cryptocurrency practice here at Steptoe, and I will be substituting in as your host for today's program. So, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, the news roundup topics. The big news, of course, since our last podcast, was uh, the release of some long-awaited guidance from the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, about their on their thoughts about launching digital tokens. And so, there's a couple of pieces to discuss. Uh, we'll discuss them in pieces. We'll try to pull them back together. But the first is uh, staff guidance, a uh, framework for investment contract analysis of digital assets. And Gary, maybe you can take us through that that framework a bit.
2: Absolutely. This is, as you pointed out, long-awaited guidance from the SEC, really highly anticipated going back to the, the Dow report. We spoke about that in previous podcasts. And that was pre- previous the, the decentralized autonomous organization uh,
1: that had launched on the Ethereum network and uh, prompted a whole bunch of questions. Gosh, three years ago about what constituted a security or an investment
2: contract in the token world. Right. And that really, I think, brought the issue of the, of the Howey test uh, to, the, to the forefront of the analysis for, for digital assets. And so what we now have with this framework is, you know, for the first time, uh, not in a speech, but in, a, in a I think, a, a carefully written and well-constructed framework, how to apply the elements of the Howey test to digital assets. And the Howey test, of course, is the test from uh, the Supreme Court case
1: uh, the SEC brought. um, uh, The Supreme Court's decision, a case the SEC brought against um, a company in the 1940s selling investment
2: contracts. Yes, involving orange groves, as people are quick to point out. But the four elements of the Howey test, which are all discussed in the framework, are uh, an investment of money in a common enterprise, with the reasonable expectation of profits derived from the efforts of others. The commission staff really focuses on prongs three and prongs four, the number three being reasonable expectation of profits, and four being whether or not um, they are derived from the efforts
1: of others. So this is really where, in essence, the rubber hits the road on whether
2: a token is going to be seen as a security or not. Right. And in fact, the discussion of the first two prongs, I think, didn't generate more than about six lines in the entire 12- or 13-page document.
1: Yeah, so sorry for any of the folks who are thinking of making their stand on
2: prongs one and two. It's probably not going to be successful. So. Right. So in terms of the efforts of other prong, uh, what the commission staff introduced is the concept of of an active participant. I, I think this is has some of the themes that were um, raised in terms of the speech that Bill Hinman gave last year in terms of whether or not something is is decentralized and there was a lot of discussion immediately following that speech about what it meant to be decentralized people were asking questions whether that referred to the technology of the network or the platform or whether the individuals involved in the governance or 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 some combination thereof and what what I think this guidance seeks to do is is identify what the commission staff thinks people should look at in terms of whether or not there is a identifiable person or group of people that are really behind the asset. And
1: so this is kind of following on, as you said, the Hinman speech and the idea of why a, a, a protocol, a network like Ethereum, uh, the sale of Ether might, no long, might not be considered the sale of an investment contract now.
2: I think that's exactly right. And what we see in the guidance is a, a dozen or more factors that the staff urges people to look at to help identify whether or not you have a situation where there's an active participant that could be responsible for the, um, the profits of the, uh, of the enterprise.
3: Yeah, let me interject, if I can, with a, a comment uh, from a, a fellow practitioner. Uh, having uh, now tried to apply the framework for uh, a few weeks, which is, is what we've had thus far, um, you have uh, kindly identified the number of factors as a dozen or so. Um, I think opinions in our group vary, but uh, you might uh, argue that it's two dozen or perhaps three dozen. Uh, factors that uh, one needs to contend with, and I suppose depending upon the day, I consider that a, a plus or a minus.
2: Well, I think. Listen, I, I'm not going to argue with that. And I think one of the things about this document that I think makes it very helpful uh, is the fact that it seeks to apply factors in the context of the four elements of the Howey test. Previously, in in testimony or in speech from other commissioners, or staff, or chairman of the SEC, um, they've given bits of information, but really never in a framework or in the context so you can assign or attribute a particular statement to a particular legal, to the legal legal framework under the under the Howey test. So I think that is a is a great step forward. I will say, Will, I I do agree with you. Uh, while the document does a great job of trying to identify facts in the various elements, there is a section towards the end of the document that goes on refer to all our other relevant considerations, which I think is, um, you know, sort of in a sense is a hodgepodge of, of other factors. And I've, I've spent some time trying to look at them and see whether or not they could properly have fallen in under, uh, you know, prong three or prong four. Right. And so in a sense, it's kind of,
1: yeah, you, you have to go back and then remix the, the, the ingredients that they've given you. So do you have one category where the framework lays out with respect to prong three, of the test, which has to do with the efforts of others. But that's not the only consideration. That's not the only category that might take you out uh,
2: outside of the, the Howey test. There's another one, right? Yes, there is. And that would be whether or not there's a reasonable expectation of profits. And you know, I think as much as the framework sought to give guidance on what that meant, I think the framework perhaps was overshadowed by a document that was released uh, at the same time. And that's a no action letter uh, that deems a particular digital asset not to be a security because it did not meet that element of the Howey test. And so what's
1: so interesting, it's not so much the no expectation of profit by anybody. You can still profit by using the token. It's no expectation of profit from the appreciation of the token itself. But it was remarkable also from what you said Gary, in that this is really the first no action letter that the SEC has issued in this space as well. So maybe, Will, you can tell us about uh, this no action letter and, and what you think it means.
3: Uh, sure. So uh, again, in our group, there are varying uh, degrees of enthusiasm uh, for the no action letter. But I, but I think uh, we should note, because uh, we spend a lot of time in in the posture of being critical, Uh, that both the framework and the no-action letter provide uh, some uh, tremendously helpful guidance. So briefly, here's what the no-action letter we think uh, gives us. Uh, It's good guidance for structuring the elements of a private permission centralized blockchain token and network. So there are a lot of items there that uh, people uh, have approached us and I know other uh, uh, members of the bar uh, in in terms of achieving those business objectives, so uh, very helpful on, on on that front, I think.
1: Yeah. So, and this this no action letter pertained to a uh, an aviation company, right? That basically wanted to have a um, a prepaid access program that was used with uh, that used a token as kind of the uh, the thing that you bought, you loaded up, uh, and then used those tokens within that platform.
3: Yes, although I think it's important to note that uh, for uh, this network, there were going to be, it's contemplated that there are going to be multiple commercial users. So there is a a single uh, seller and administrator of the token in the network, uh, but the network is contemplated to operate within the uh, jet charter industry and would be utilized not only by consumers, but also Uh, brokers and providers of services as a uh, means of commerce.
1: And Turnkey, uh, the company in this instance, also took another step to make sure that you couldn't
3: profit from the appreciation of the token, right? Which was clearly of of great interest to the the staff. So um, it's important to note that uh, uh, everyone who will purchase tokens will be uh, contractually bound uh, to Turnkey. And Turnkey is committed uh, to the SEC um, and uh, is contractually requiring that all its network participants utilize the tokens solely within the Turnkey network. Uh, So there's not an expectation uh, from the staff. In fact, I feel pretty confident staff would be pretty surprised (laughs) if they saw uh, the Turnkey tokens show up on an exchange at some point in in the future. Yeah,
1: and in addition to the exchange, they even went ahead – went so far as to peg the value of the token,
3: right, in this instance. Yeah, so it is a stable coin uh, uh, pegged to the dollar. And uh, that's clearly contemplated by the framework. At least my reading of the framework is that uh, you could contemplate pegs beyond – our own government's currency, uh, but it's uh, understandable that the staff would be comfortable with that particular peg. I
2: think that's exactly right. I think the idea that the first no-action letter deals with, in effect, the stablecoin peg to the U.S. dollar, just shows the sort of incremental nature in which guidance in this area is often given by the staff. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I I think that you know both the uh, the framework and the no-action letter you know do increase the amount of clarity and in a lot of plain language is promised by the staff. You know, I do think it's a bit ironic that the, the first no action letter around kind of crypto assets or, or you know, blockchain-based uh, instruments uh, involves uh, private jets, you know. Kind of <laughs> you know, um, you know Chair, Chairman Clayton has spoken about kind of Mr. and Mrs. 401k and how Mr. and Mrs. 401k kind of don't really get the opportunity to invest in these kind of tech in these tech companies. And, you know, Mr. and Mrs. 401k probably are not going to be the people buying these private jet tokens. But I
2: think that's exact Jeff, I think that's exactly the point. Because these are not meant to be investments. There is no expectation of profits. Much of what the Turnkey No Action Letter, I think, reveals is is the way in which the blockchain technology can really enhance efficiencies in what's otherwise potentially a very costly and cumbersome process of paying for um, private jet travel. Again, not problems I've experienced personally, but it doesn't, you don't need to be um, well-heeled to understand from the no-action letter some of the friction costs uh, and risks that go into using the traditional channels of, of finance.
1: Yeah, so maybe we can, uh, we can look forward to seeing similar processes for uh, maybe fractional leasing of Lamborghinis and things of that nature. Well, well, so, I, well I think the
0: problem it solves in a way, is, as, as Gary pointed, it, it really is a type of uh, friction that the that this uh, stablecoin uh, enables kind of faster payments at a time when you know money when wire transfers wouldn't necessarily be available, and so it involves kind of the movement of payments. So it's a stablecoin. You could think of it as a, a payment token.
2: But yeah, you know, I, th- I think we we can expect to see more in this uh, area as well. Right. Again, i and I don't I don't know the history of this, but I certainly be curious someday to learn what the coin looked like when it first came into the SEC as part of the, the this no action letter process. You know, for those who might not be familiar, the incoming letter is dated, I believe, the day before the outgoing letter. This was not all done overnight. This was no doubt the process of many um, months, if if not even quarters, of back and forth and and trying to see what ultimately the SEC encouraged or, or required to be changed, I think would be very, very helpful in, in, in predicting what they might um, permit in the future.
1: Yeah, and you can even see that in, in the incoming uh, uh, correspondence, the justification for the no action letter. There are some references to things that were changed at the advice yeah. of uh, of the staff. So, OK, so, so the framework gives us kind of two uh, categories linked to the third and fourth prongs of the Howey test. So you can mm-hmm. contemplate, uh, as in turnkey and in prong four, um, these networks where there's no expectation, there's no reasonable expectation of profit due to the appreciation of the value of the token, either because it is used in a closed loop system or because it's pegged to the dollar or another fiat currency or for other types of controls on things like secondary trading. Then, of course, there's, um, there's also on the other side, uh, Bill Hinman's statement that's since been, uh, if not reaffirmed, then at least not contradicted. Uh, that Ethereum, as a as a protocol uh, and as a network, is is um, it falls outside uh, of this context also, uh, and that Ether itself is not being sold today as a uh, as an investment contract, and and likewise with Bitcoin as well.
2: Right, I mean, I think that's exactly the point of the section of the framework that talks about efforts of others. It really tries to bring a lot of the themes that were raised in the him speech and put it more squarely in the context of the of the Howey framework and amplified through the addition of, again, whether it's a dozen or or several dozen uh, factors or elements to consider. Yes. And
0: then I think, you know, one of the other uh, factors, if you look at something like turnkey is, you know, the, the system or network was already built. So going back to some of Chairman Clayton's speeches where he talks about kind of the bookstore or the library of the future, as opposed to uh, doing 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 fundraising to build a network and people are paying buying the tokens that will be used in the future. You know, I think a, a factor that was important here is that the the network for these uh, private aircraft already
2: existed. Although I'm going to maybe contradict you a little bit on that one, uh, Jeff, and I think that highlights some of the complexity of this analysis because if you look at the framework itself, where it talks about whether or not the network is still in development really pertains to the reliance on the efforts of others. So the fact is, if a network has already been fully formed and fully functional, then there's a more credible case to be made that you do not have these active participants. So I think it's interesting that, that, yes, that's certainly a true element in the turnkey uh, no action letter. But again, if you think about it rising or falling based purely on the no expectation of profits, uh, then that's kind of a a side factor. So maybe, in fact, what your statement there points out, that that really this no action letter speaks to maybe two elements just in slightly different ways.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. I think there's definitely a tension there between in order to achieve kind of functionality, there's a certain amount of centralization that has to go on. But you then need to be able to kind of release that centralization in order to remove the reliance on an active participant to meet the decentralized categorization, so so it'll be interesting to see, and this is a, this is a, an interesting issue in uh, something that we we won't get deeply into, but because um, we haven't heard too much lately, uh, but the uh, that the proponents and the founders of the kick token uh, and the and its pair, and its uh, sister Kin Foundation um, had made statements to the effect that they they're planning to fight an enforcement action. By the SEC, and of course, the Kick platform was a pre-existing social media platform that then added uh, a token, um, and we'll see then if that gives us more clarity around uh, kind of the Howey prong three analysis on uh, whether a, a platform's reached a certain level of decentralization so that it looks and matches kind of the Ethereum uh,
3: uh, model. Or perhaps what it means to be fully developed in the context of uh, a a software uh, product or a software system. I I think um, one of the things that's interesting is that that language doesn't harmonize very well with the language that you hear developers using around MVP and and the concept of uh, agile uh, development and continuous improvement of, of a product. Obviously, the staff is aware of those terms and chose not to adopt them. They, they used language that, that uh, I suspect will be uh, more helpful uh, in policing uh, folks that are perhaps have abusive intent with these standards.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And it's an interesting segue because we also saw um, another potential uh, model or pathway kind of emerge with the first – uh, Reg A filing by uh, by Blockstack for proposing a, a regulated token, which is notable not only as kind of the the most mature effort uh, to register a token under Reg A, but also because the, the the registration statement itself kind of picks up some of these themes and, and tries to address them. So Gary, maybe you can talk to us a bit about the filing.
2: Right, absolutely. Um, so what we have is is I think the first Reg A filing that uh, involves a a digital asset. Reg A has been around for many, many years, but was recently amended uh, following the JOBS Act uh, to, in effect, create two tiers of offerings. There's a tier one that allows capital raise of up to $20 million per year, and tier two, which is what Blockstack uh, token sought to do, which is up to $50 million uh, in a 12-month period. And, And tier two Uh, offers a number of additional benefits, but with it also has certain obligations, including heightened disclosure obligations and and requirements for audited financials. But one of the the things that the Blockstack offering circular points out is that while it is seeking to raise capital as a security today, it is in its near term and perhaps even critical to its success that it cease becoming a security and achieve that level of decentralization uh, such that it it no longer would meet the definition of a security. And if you look at the document, first of all, as a securities lawyer, this is the first offering circular that I've seen that really has the look and feel of what a securities uh, lawyer uh, expects in in contrast to what white papers are. In fact, white papers are exhibits to, to this offering circular. Uh, But one of the risk factors that's identified is that if it does not achieve the requisite level of decentralization to no longer be a security, the fact that it can only raise up to $50 million a year might threaten its continued viability, particularly if it doesn't have enough funds to provide the incentives for mining or other other reward activity.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating in that the filing contemplates a closed-loop network. Where people purchase the tokens, they use the tokens on the platform, and miners are rewarded uh, with the tokens. But then it all stops until one of two things happens, right? There are uh, alternative trading systems or national exchanges on which you can trade this type of a token, of which none of them, none exists right now, and or the token reaches or the platform, the network reaches a level of decentralization where it would fail the, the third prong of the Howey test, basically, along the lines of the factors that are uh, set out in the framework. And so it's almost a, a game of chicken in a certain way.
2: It is, and there's some other elements as well. And, and this this offering circular does a very good job of also laying out the previous uh, sales, whether they're SAFs, whether they're private placements, so investors really can understand about what the full ownership of this um, of the stacks token will be, help them assess the level of dilution. There are also certain covenants or or requirements from some of the earlier investors to meet certain uh, hurdles or milestones that if they do not achieve those, uh, then the the potential for return of funds. So does a very, very uh, complete and thorough job of trying to lay out the risk factors one of which being, we're a <laughs> security today, and our success is perhaps predicated on us not being a security, not too far away, given some of the limitations that reggae provides.
1: Yeah, it's a very elegant um, kind of solution to this problem of how you tie all these pieces back together, of pre-sales and SAFs and 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 uh, general sale tokens, but it also presents these these risks and challenges of what happens next.
2: Yeah, if I could also add one other thing, um, Alan, that's very interesting. In the document is some of the discussion in the exhibits that uh, respond to some of the questions that the staff of the SEC have been raising over the previous um, you know, six to nine months. And while those responses that come from the issuer are not should not be seen as authoritative or even approved or blessed by the, by the staff, they do speak to a number of issues that folks in this community have been, been talking about for some time, including such matters as whether or not miners are broker-dealers or whether activities by the issuer or activities on the blockchain implicate the various types of registration under the National Clearance and Settlement System, whether as a clearing agency itself or, or transfer agent, something I think we'll talk to Jeff Berman about a bit later, or also such things as whether or not the um, the network is required to register as an exchange or an alternative trading system. So it, it, very interesting back and forth Uh, And certainly, you can see as the SEC looks at these, it expects the issuers to have given some thought to these particular factors. Now, again, as I said, it doesn't resolve them. And and frankly, in many cases, it identifies these as particular risks to the investment in that it might be deemed to be acting as an unregistered clearing agency or unregistered transfer agent or risk that its minors might be deemed to be unregistered brokers.
3: Yeah. yeah. I'd add maybe a, another interesting issue that we and others have talked about is uh, what is a sale uh, in this context? Because there is some distinction uh, made in the filing between token that's being used for a consumptive purpose as uh, generally defined uh, in the document versus uh, perhaps something that looks closer to traditional uh, investment transactions such as a sale on an exchange yeah it's a it's got so many different
1: pieces to it and i also i also liked the piece um and it goes to the point that jeff made which is one of the risk factors is of course as the network decentralizes right the the the, the the core software itself may be modified in ways that are outside of Blockstack's control and that may take it outside of the requirements of securities laws or outside of what's represented in the offering documents. Um, but that's just a natural risk of the of the platform decentralizing. Yeah,
0: that, so that's a fascinating dynamic. I mean, I th- I think it's very hard if you're trying to start up, uh, you know, a new network and again, sort of fund it from the potential users to be decentralized day one if you've got a management team. Uh, now, one way you can address it is we talked about the, you know, maybe you just squeeze out all the uh, reasonable expectation of of profits. But, you know, I th- I think if you are an innovator or an entrepreneur in this, this space, you know, it's hard to both kind of apply your skills to the genesis of these exciting new business models and also be decentralized.
1: Yeah. No, it's fascinating. Fascinating. I think the last piece maybe to, to touch on before we turn to our, our broader discussion with Jeff on the securities piece is that, of course, um, Congressman Davidson and Soto uh, from the House Financial Services Committee, together with a number of other co-sponsors, have reintroduced uh, the Token Taxonomy Act, which has um, some pieces addressing securities laws and some pieces addressing tax. Now, in the fall, when uh when the Token Taxonomy Act was originally introduced, it was kind of running uh, ahead of where the SEC was. Now, you know, we have a lot more coming from the from the commission side. So, Gary, maybe it's just a just a quick overview of what those securities law pieces are in the Token Taxonomy Act.
2: Sure. Absolutely. So, one of the key elements of the, the act is that it would exempt a digital token from the definition of a security. Now, of course, it defines a digital token. and And... I guess for purposes of brevity here, I think really the key element that's going to distinguish between a digital token and, and something else is not, is not so much its use of the cryptography or the blockchain, but, but that the digital token is not something that represents a financial interest in, in a company much like a, a, a stock or a or, or bond or traditional security would. So, this act is really designed to address the types of issues raised by utility tokens or consumptive tokens.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So you have the definition, and then it's fitting into the secu- existing securities exemptions. You have preemption language uh, intending to preempt state regulation, right? There,
2: uh, yes, there's a, there's preemption uh, other than for for anti fraud. Mm-hmm. I think really the two elements of this that I find I find particularly interesting, maybe maybe three. First is the idea that if you conduct an offering in good faith that you believe is a digital token and, and not a security, then, you know, you have, if the SEC concludes otherwise in writing, then mm-hmm. you're allowed 90 days to cease sales and return all of the proceeds that may have been received, except those that you can evidence have having been reasonably spent on developing the network or the technology. So mm-hmm. I think the fact is the way in which it it allows entrepreneurs to read this and in good faith rely without some of the draconian consequences um, that typically arise when you run afoul of the registration provisions, I think is, is rather uh, significant. I think the other area that certainly caught my attention uh, really deals with issue of, of custody mm-hmm. and qualified custodian or, or um, for advisors or for a um, good control location for broker-dealers. And so, what the legislation would do would amend the definition of a bank, a three A six bank, um, under the under the various securities laws, to allow or include the providing uh, custodial services. Right. So previously, bank was defined or state bank was defined in scope as um, receiving deposits or ex- exercising fiduciary powers. And there was a some discussion or Questioning around whether or not where custodial services fit in within that, that framework, particularly under the fiduciary powers. This now makes it explicit. Uh, so a state bank that provides custodial services would qualify both as a a qualified custodian as well as a good control location. And maybe the final thing I'd point out um, is that it also directs the SEC to amend Rule 15C3-3, the customer protection rule, within 90 days to address custody issues.
1: A lot of different pieces in there. And I also found it interesting, of course, that it ends, at uh, the securities uh, law side ends that nothing is meant to interfere with the jurisdiction of the CFTC or the Federal Trade Commission. Of course, as a veteran of the Department of Homeland Security myself, um, I recognize the peace treaty nature of the language that we're not trying to do anything on jurisdiction quite yet, just trying to clean up our house. There's also a couple of pieces on tax. In in here, the bill would re-expand the Section 1031, that like-kind exchange provisions to include uh, crypto-to-crypto transactions, Uh, although it's silent on how you determine Uh, which crypto assets are similar enough to other crypto assets to determine that they are in kind. It also would establish a de minimis exclusion for sales and exchanges, um, except for crypto to fiat exchanges. So basically to exempt small consumer transactions from uh, from sales taxes, uh, et cetera. And then regulations on information reporting, Um, which is a really important piece for, number one, how as individuals we file our taxes and account for things like uh, uh, basis determinations and others, but also for how exchanges are mandated to provide information to the IRS. And this was, of course, the subject of uh, the John Doe summons uh, to Coinbase from last year and a notable issue for cryptocurrency exchanges to keep in mind.
0: Yeah. Now it's one, one I'd say a federal uh, regulatory gap that remains, uh, you know, has to do with who is going to uh, oversee from a market supervision perspective, uh, the, the spot markets and trading markets in kind of cash crypto assets that are not securities. So, you know, the, the CFTC has uh, enforcement authority—you know—when those uh, when activities in those markets affect the derivatives markets, but the CFTC does not have authority to directly supervise, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, a Bitcoin trading market um, if it's just uh, operating in in cash Bitcoin, there's not a, a derivative involved, and so kind of by by leaving that out, you know, if you had a spot market for a security that would presumably come under the SEC's supervision, in fact, as it as it already does. But if a token became sufficiently decentralized so it no longer fell under there, you know it wouldn't be under the CFTC's supervision and it wouldn't be under the SEC's supervision.
1: Yeah, no, this is an interesting question. And maybe that's a good transition point uh, over to our discussion, Jeff, with you uh, because you're involved in a number of efforts to try to bring some clarity. Uh, to this space and and to try to figure out how you know what does responsible governance over uh, these ver- this uh, this variety of um, of activities look like. So maybe we could we could start our discussion with you with respect to your activities in helping to found uh, and run global digital finance. So maybe you can tell us a bit about glo- global digital finance, what it is, what it's for. Why it's different? Sure, absolutely. Very, very excited to
0: talk about uh, global digital finance. And for your uh, listeners, GDF.io is the website if they want to learn more about it. So it's definitely been a, a team and, and community effort. Of a number of uh, co-founders in the the in in Europe, and Asia, as well as in the in the U.S. And uh, you know, a great community that's gotten involved. So uh, global digital finance is really uh, seeking to promote. Uh, higher international standards uh, for uh, for behaviors and activities in the crypto asset or you know, digital finance market. These instruments can move about, you know, globally and and you know frictionlessly. And really, the, the genesis for this organization amongst uh, some of my uh, kind of co-founders myself was really in as we saw the activities in kind of late 2017 and early 2018. You know, ICOs. We you know, concerns about a number of the practices, but there wasn't really a you know a clear set of standards that uh, we we could point to, or even you know a shared set of words to describe the, the same thing. You know, country by country, you know, different countries were taking d- different actions uh, in terms of you know enforcement. Some of them having bespoke regulation, but we thought it would be important for the for the industry to come together you know, to really uh, to show the regulators and, and governments that the industry could develop uh, standards and collaborate to have, uh, have have better standards and consistent practices.
2: So, Jeff, I've been involved with GDF uh, for, for quite a while now. And one of the things that, you know, I notice is that group comes together and it's not the, the case that they argue that there should be no standards and no regulation. But in fact, what they're trying to do is establish those the very elements that will promote trust and integrity in the markets. And so it, it seems like you know very very natural from your comment before about these concerns that if, if under the Token Taxonomy Act, if something's not a security, well then who's gonna oversee its trading in the secondary market? One of the things I think that GDF has been at the forefront is trying to make sure that these these assets are operating with the level of, of, of transparency and regulation in effect, or standards, should I say that sophisticated market participants have really come to expect
0: yeah and uh, no that's a great observation Gary and it's been great having your your involvement in steptos uh, involvement in uh, in gdF over the past uh, past year uh, you know people sometimes say are you an SRO or self-regulatory organization and we, we don't really think of ourselves that way um, you know we came together uh, and you know it's you know for the first year or so it's just been kind of completely voluntary now we've we've gotten some Support, So we're starting to have, you know, a little kind of uh, resource uh, on our own. But, you know, it's really a community industry driven thing to say, well, what are the the key principles uh, and for the industry to define those? Uh, You know, so when we when we started this process, you know, we sort of looked at some of these models that were out there. We looked at things like there's uh, the FX code of conduct, which is, you know, 80 pages long and took three years to develop, uh, I believe, You know there are things in open source. There's stuff in peer-to-peer. So there were a number of different models. But we realized, you know, we first of all we thought it was important to to develop it more quickly, and and secondly that we couldn't get that granular that fast because you know there just wasn't enough consensus. And so uh, our initial focus was to develop some high-level principles, uh, and then start to add additional modules of of principles. And so that work uh, began in the first half of uh, 2018. In addition our community drafted a taxonomy or set of definitions because what we realized was there wasn't even a shared understanding of what terms mean. And so I'll you know, give an example of, of this. Uh, we, we had one of our meetings in, uh, in a number of cities, including Paris uh, last year. And after the meeting, we had a discussion with one of the regulators mm-hmm. who was an observer in the meeting. And she said, Jeff, you know, what do you think about decentralized exchanges? and so we had a 5 or 10 minute conversation about decentralized exchanges and then we discovered we actually meant two completely different things when we use the term decentralized exchange and so you know the need for just a taxonomy or set of definitions i mean it's one of these sort of geeky things but it, you know it's really important just to have a shared understanding and a set of common words so we're actually talking about the same thing
1: i've also been struck in a, in, in my participation on the firm's behalf um, in GDF by something else that you said which is this is not a. US focused effort this is really an effort to try to find those um, common principles and common points across a number of dur- different jurisdictions
0: yeah that that's been you know a focus from day one you know it, it definitely is one of the challenges in the space because you know uh, different jurisdictions have you know different rules some of them have have more, you know, or more granular. So, you know, to, to sort of characterize the US pretty, pretty broadly and, and maybe a bit simplistically, but, you know, a lot of kind of digital assets has been kind of put into existing category. Either it's, you know, a lot of these things are commodities, so under the Commodity Exchange Act within the, the CFTC's world, or they're investment contracts, or they're offered as investment contracts, so they fit into the, S- the SEC's world. You know, then you have uh, other jurisdictions like in the, in the European Union, where you know, the, the definition of commodity is much narrower and doesn't tend to include intangible things. So generally, crypto assets have not been a commodity. Uh, the definition of a financial instrument is much narrower uh, also. And so many uh, you know, offerings that would be considered a security here are not considered a security there, though there are some that, that are. So we, we've had to kind of develop international standards that you know, in some cases fill the gap. But you know, always with acknowledgement that, of course, you need to follow standing law, and you need to educate yourself about standing law and jurisdictions yeah. where so, you operate.
1: No, and it's very interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure it gives you an interesting perspective as to where the U.S. falls on on a couple of issues relating to um, its international peers. You know, one of those is definitely kind of this question of experimentation and sandboxes. Uh, curious to see to hear your thoughts on. You know, we see that in some jurisdictions. We haven't seen as much here. What's your thought on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I th- actually think that um, the, the the U.S. Um, you know, the the authorities, you know, particularly the the SEC and 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 the CFTC, you know, I think have been you know very progressive in certain certain ways here. Uh, you know, I mean, the fact that that we have this um, kind of jurisdiction over kind of financial instruments in the U.S. as opposed to, you know, in some, in some countries you have much more one-stop shopping. You know, there's a single authority that oversees the banks and the markets and and uh, and is the central bank and so on. And, you know, there's pros and cons to that, right? Because if you don't like what they say, you don't really have somewhere else <laughs> to go. That's kind of it for that country. But, you know, I think that his, uh, you know, two, two things I would observe about the U.S. I mean, first, uh, the SEC and the CFTC have spent many years, you know, getting themselves educated about these things, you know, I chaired the CFTC working group, which we put together in in 2015 to start monitoring blockchain and and virtual currencies. And we meet with other regulators and industry and so on, you know, the SEC to their credit, uh, I think in 2013, I think is when uh, they started their group chaired by Valerie uh, Speck, who's now the head of, uh, you know, FinHub. So they've been educating themselves. And I think, you know, for the CFTC, you know, for example, when the time came, to evaluate the the bitcoin futures you know the staff had spent a lot of time educating itself and you know understanding a lot of the the terminology so i think that there's the education you know i think also there is you know regulatory flexibility in the us in the in the form of no action letters which you know some some countries don't have but you know i i do think that these you know having channels for experimentation in other jurisdictions has been quite useful.
2: Yeah. One of the, I think, misperceptions around sandboxes in other jurisdictions um, is that in order to participate those, or in participating in those, that you are not subject to regulation. And, and in, in many jurisdictions, and um, UK in particular, in order to, to be eligible to participate in a sandbox, you need to already be fully licensed and authorized. And so I feel as if people look at sandboxes as a way to try things out before going through the regulatory process. That's not consistently or uniformly what a sandbox is.
1: Yeah. And of course, uh, securities law and commodities law is not the only areas that you're looking at. Of course, uh, our firm does a lot of work on things like anti-money laundering and economic sanctions. And this is another area where, uh, where GDF has been involved, um, looking at uh, statements from the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, or FATF, uh, and other areas. Do you want to talk a bit about that?
0: Yeah, that that's actually a, a very a very important uh, area, and uh, you know I think there's, you know, the Financial Action Task Force FATF Gatti, has been, you know, for you know for for decades, you know, trying to, uh, you know, implementing you know guidance, interpretation standards, and mechanisms for for anti money laundering, you know, counterterrorist finance, and and so on, and you know they had put out a number of statements. Uh, you know, a few years ago, but they've made it a top priority of the the current presidency uh, under kind of the the U.S. Treasury to uh, develop, um, uh, you know, clear guidance and standards for virtual assets and virtual asset service providers. And so uh, GDF had had, uh, we already had an AML KYC group that was kind of working to develop principles that started uh, last, last summer, uh, but then starting uh, in, in uh, kind of late summer, early fall, as the FATF has been focusing on these definitions, we've been engaging to, to, to really look at, you know, are the definitions of a virtual asset service provider, you know, are those definitions sufficiently clear? Uh, you know, should the obligations of those be similar to those of a financial institution? Does, is it actually even technologically feasible to require a virtual asset service provider to uh, include the type of information that typically in- accompanies a wire, wire transfer. So, uh, you know, that, that group, with a lot of input from the GDF community, has already filed uh, two, two letters, which are publicly available on the website. Uh, it's, it's still a very big focus. There's an industry, um, you know, private industry forum that FATF has organized coming up at the beginning of May that GDF will be very involved in participating in. And look, I mean, there's absolutely consensus. That you know, it's it's critical to have you know strong AML KYC you know for crypto assets. Um, at the same time, it, it needs to be kind of practical and, and achievable. And you know, you can't just necessarily have a copy and paste approach from other areas. You, you want to achieve the same goals, but also take into account um, some of the technology and other facets. So,
1: how would kind of people or organizations, go about getting involved in, in GDF?
0: Yeah, so we're a very co- community-driven uh, org- organization. Um, so we actually, uh, there's the participate to, uh, the opportunity start to participate in different uh, working groups. Uh, so we have currently, uh, we have work streams that have been going on on um, security tokens, on stable coins, on uh, custody. Uh, we just started a new one on uh, tax, uh, we're also kicking a new one on uh, on market integrity that are coming up so you know by reaching out to uh, to to gdf to our either to our director uh, Tina Baker Taylor or just to our um, our, our website uh, you know there's there's opportunities and but there's also other other ways um, you know I definitely encourage um, uh, listeners to kind of check out some of the principles and that we're actually just rolling out a framework now where people can adhere to the principles and we would love You know, if people engage and start to adhere to these principles. Uh, The other thing that I think is very, very important, whenever our community drafts those, we have kind of working groups. Then we have kind of quarterly kind of summits of of our community. But then every single thing we do, we don't just adopt them on the basis of that. We we submit them out there for public comment, Um, you know, just as if a a regulator were doing a, a notice and comment rulemaking. And so, for example, for our first set of uh, high-level principles in taxonomy last summer, we got about 650 comments from 150 different commenters. And, you know, all of those were, uh, you know, then kind of reflected back into uh, the documents. Uh, you know, fortunately, somebody other than me was the one who, or, right. uh, you know, who, who compiled all those. And so some of those found their way into those principles. Others identified uh, new work streams and further work that needed to be done. But, you know, I think we're going to be uh, kind of in in May likely to post the initial uh, principles for stable coins and security tokens. And there will be opportunity for public comment and for stakeholders all over the world to comment. I certainly encourage people to do that. Right. Now, Jeff,
2: as you know, I've been very involved with that working group on security tokens. And so I do uh, agree with you that when those principles get published um, for comment, I do encourage people to, to react. So, Jeff, maybe I want to maybe shift gears a little bit. So we've, gone, we've been working together for a number of years back when you were at the CFTC and when I was at the SEC um, in connection with clearing agencies and central counterparties. And so I understand you've got some new work or new developments that you're heavily involved with in the post-trade clearance and settlement process, in particular around transfer agent functions. Do you mind sharing with me some of your, yeah. your activities in that space?
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely, Gary. So... Um, yeah, so uh, I'm in the process of launching um, what will be a new uh, transfer agent service called uh, Block Agent. Uh, the, the service will be focused on enabling and supporting issuances in, I would say, the SEC-regulated world that are underpinned by, uh, you know, blockchain-based instruments.
2: No, again, I think what I understand about your, your work in that space is it it really is born from the from the recognition that as these digital assets are, are treated as securities, there is a, a full regulatory regime that applies to them. And certain of uh, you know market infrastructures are well suited to to legacy issuers or legacy providers and, and others are, are I think targeting more in the emerging areas uh, and helping them, I think, understand these regulatory obligations and the benefits that flow from them.
0: Yeah, I think it's very, very important and and as you know as these kind of markets fall under kind of, you know, regulated areas, whether it's by the SEC, the CFTC, or by authorities and other jurisdictions, you know, I think it's very important to have uh, market infrastructure that's, um, that both, you know, operates in, in compliance with the existing regulatory regimes, but also it, it really um, is is designed and and operates in a way that recognizes some of the, the novel features and efficiencies that these types of instruments generate. So, uh you know, the, you know, some people might say, well, why do you need a transfer agent at all? Doesn't the blockchain do that? And, you know, for purposes of, you know, just, you know, kind of a transfer agent in kind of the traditional securities markets, and this is a, gr- a great simplification, but they kind of keep track of things of, you know, who's the owner of record, you know, they, they may facilitate uh, communications, all, all sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, many of those functions you know the blockchain performs a, a number, at least aspects of those, but you know you still need somebody to check the blockchain. You still need somebody to make sure that the smart contract operates as it is intended to. You still need somebody to maintain kind of books and records and a control book, and you know map files in a way that's comprehensible to and accessible to uh, the the regulator. And, you know, it's critical that those things, you know, be done in a compliant way. It benefits the issuers of those. It benefits, you know, token holders or token investors. But to do it in a way that really promotes the, the efficiencies and the adoption of these blockchain technologies, I think, is an important part of the vision.
2: Right. I mean, one of the things that a transfer agent also is responsible for is to make sure there's an over-issuance of, overissuance of securities. Again, these are important requirements that help promote the integrity of the market and of, of the issuer. As well as deal with issues r- r- um, involving lost or stolen securities, typical, typically a significant part of what a, a transfer agent does today, I think, is deal with those very issues.
0: No, yeah, that, that's right, and that's that's very important, right? Like we've 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 seen in in the case of, you know, many uh, you know crypto assets, there have been losses, there are there have been thefts, and you know, I think a very important protection for um, token holders, and something I think regulators will want to see is that there is a responsible mechanism in place to ensure that there's an appropriate process for dealing with lost, lost or stolen, that there's recourse and that a method and that there's someone who will check the information and then there's a process for dealing with that. It's just kind of a basic investor protection.
2: Yeah, I think early on with all the enthusiasm around blockchain, it was maybe seen that a lot of these post-trade services or regulatory functions would be completely unnecessary. And I think as sophistication grows among the market participants, uh, there's a refocusing of how those post-trade services will 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 be um, applied in the case of digital assets.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, the range of different things that are going on in this space, and even just the, the range and depth of things we've discussed uh, today. I- I'm curious, Jeff, uh, in addition to all the other things that you're doing, you had the experience this fall of, of teaching a seminar for students up at Yale. And what was your experience like trying to relate all of this uh this information about this industry and what was the students' reaction?
0: Yeah, it was it was a, a great experience and they were a very, you know, kind of smart and hardworking uh you know group of group of, of seniors. But um yeah, the you know, there was definitely uh you know, first of all, a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. Uh, you know, these were students in the global affairs uh major who had kind of opted in to kind of take this seminar you know, a, a couple of them had had, uh, you know, prior experience of one kind or another with, with Bitcoin or, or crypto assets. One of them had traded in a few. Uh, others had written a report during his summer in a consulting company, you know, but, you know, some of them di- didn't really know anything about it at all. They were just really excited to, to learn more about it. And, you know, what I found, I mean, I kind of think of, of that, that age group as sort of the natively digital generation. I mean, you know, for us, or for me, at least, you know, I've sort of, gone through various uh, analog uh, technologies in my career, whether it's, you know, kind of rota- rotary phones to touch tone or typewriters or, you know, all sorts of other things. Uh, but, you know, they, they live in this natively digital world. And so they're, you know, I think really ex- excited about the, the potential for blockchain. You know, I think they had, had a fair balance of both excitement and skepticism. Part of their work was to, you know, they did an assessment of a number of use cases and case studies. That they looked at, and they're like, "Well, you know the blockchain is not always the right solution they they assess things on the basis of of scalability efficiency, transparency, usually transparency was good, but the scalability and efficiency you know were were challenging
1: yep no yeah. no, no no, that's fascinating yeah
0: and it's and it's interesting like uh, you know i i um I mean not to say this about my students particularly, but just you know when I kind of speak to um blockchain or crypto you know." People in, in that sort of age group, it turns out that uh, what a number of them uh, their their first exposure to to Bitcoin came about you know four or five years ago, and it was typically because they were using it to buy a fake ID. And so you know they they so people kind of learned it for that, and then they saw the value of Bitcoin go way up, and they thought, oh wow, I wish I had kept the Bitcoin. <laughs> but you know that's right. uh, again not so much the. Uh, my
1: students, but others in that age group. Right, right, right. Well, no, Yeah, no no comment on the fake ID purchasing uh, with, yeah. with cryptocurrency. So anyway, well, good. Well, this has been a great discussion. We typically let um, our, our guests kind of uh, plug anything that you have uh, upcoming, a speaking engagement, publication, anything you'd like to kind of add before we close out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this has been a great discussion. I'd love to see, um, uh, you know, I'd love to see people get more involved with global digital finance. Uh, you know, if there are folks who are working on uh Crypto asset offerings, or, or you know, we're you know we're previous issuers of tokens and are trying to kind of come up with new solutions where a transfer agent could help them. I definitely encourage them to reach out to me about um, block agent. And other than that, I look forward to listening to
1: your next podcast as well. <laughs> well, good. Well, thank you. Um, and yes, and to, for a reminder for, for everyone, you can come catch um, Steptoe Attorneys up at New York Blockchain Week in a couple of weeks at Consensus, and Digital Assets Summit, uh, and a number of other different fora. And then finally, uh, just a reminder, Steptoe is also hosting a half-day complimentary regulatory symposium on all things uh, regulation titled, Rules, 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 or at least it was originally, (laughs) Um, (laughs) this this coming Thursday, May 2nd. uh, The event will be held here in our Washington DC office. Uh, We have plenary speakers, including current and former commissioners and high-level officials with agencies, such as the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Surface Transportation Board, uh, and the Environmental Protection Agency. And We'll also have breakout panels focused on four separate topics, uh, deference, globalization, Uh, a a combined regulatory legislative approach and preemption. And to register, you can visit our website or simply send an email to events at steptoe.com. And we hope to welcome you later this week uh, if you have interest. So finally, um, let me say thank you uh, to Jeff Bandman uh, for joining us today. Thank you uh, to Gary Goldscholl and to Will Turner uh, for joining me. This has been Episode 261 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Next week, we'll be back to uh, your original host, Stuart Baker. But don't forget um, to suggest an interview guest. And if we take that suggestion, we will send you... Uh, a highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug, uh, if that guest comes on the show. So send your suggestions, as well as your questions, your comments, uh, and any other thoughts to CyberlawPodcast at Steptoe.com. Also follow our Stuart Baker on Twitter, at Stuart Baker, uh, for weekly updates. And please, please, please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes, on Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.